Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And from 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. Well, a few years ago, I was uh, living in a neighborhood where we had lots of trick-or-treaters at Halloween. Do you remember Halloween? I know we just got through Thanksgiving, but can you remember back to Halloween? And yeah, how many people still have Halloween candy in their house that they're trying to get rid of? Yes, that's, that's, that's right. So we had a lot of kids that would come through our neighborhood and get candy. I mean, we're talking dozens, you know, ten, you know, maybe 80 to 100 kids. That again, that's a preacher number. Um, but I, we had a lot of kids come through. So I, one year at Halloween, I decided I am going to be a character, so that when people, I'm going to be a biblical character, so that when the kids come, I'm going to dress up as a biblical character. So I would decide I was going to be Jonah in the whale. And we took our mini, I took the minivan and I opened up the back of the minivan like it was a big whale's mouth. And we took blue tarp and we put it all in the van and we made the van look like a whale. And then I put on a big bushy beard and I had a little lantern like Pinocchio sitting in the back of the van. And I would hand out candy from the back of the van. And the kids would come around and so forth. And so this family, uh, there were three kids and their parents came around and it looked like two or three families had been going around together and they came up to the van. I was handing out candy, and one of the kids says to me, who are you supposed to be? And I looked at him, and I said, who do you think I am? And he says, I think you're Osama bin Laden hiding in a cave. (laughs) And I was like, no, 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 that's not what I'm going for here. I can understand the beard, but he didn't get the whale thing. You know, it's dark out. I can understand getting get the whale. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm Jonah in the whale. And all of them looked at me like, what are you talking about, dude? 
I looked at the parents. I looked at the parents, looked at the kids, said, have you ever heard the story of Jonah in the whale? And all of them shook their heads, no. Like, we've never heard this story. This is this is new thing for us. And then I was like, aha. And then I said, would you like to hear the story? And all of them said, yeah, we'd love to hear the story. So the kids sat down at the edge of my minivan as I'm sitting on the edge of my minivan. The parents gathered around the back of our minivan. So you can imagine this little gathering this hodgepodge gathering of strangers around the back of my minivan in my driveway. And I began from memory to tell them the story of Jonah and the whale. And I told them the story as best I could in my paraphrased version, which I call, the, as you know, the PPV version, pull paraphrase version. And I told them this story, and at the end of the story, they were all like with me the whole time, mesmerized by this story in the Old Testament. And at the end of the story, I said, do you ever feel like running away from God? And I looked at the parents when I asked the question, and all of them were nodding their heads, yes, I feel like running away from God. And in that moment, I know a seed had been planted in their lives. They took their candy, they walked away, they kept on going. But what I became reminded of, not, I was already aware of it, but it reminded me that we live in a world that doesn't know the story. See, we assume, I assume, you assume, sometimes as Christians we assume that everybody knows the stories that we know because we grew up with them, because we were taught them from, from birth, many of us in the church. But for many people in our world, they have never heard the stories. And in particular, they've never heard the story of salvation, of the gospel, which is called good news. Good news. That we have a good news story to tell to the world, and yet I would say that we as a church and we as a people and we as a community have neglected to tell the good news story in a way that people would gather in and want to know more. Because I think the stories that people are hearing are misconceptions and assumptions about us. So we have to understand that as I talk today about this core practice of our church of inviting others to follow Jesus, that that's a core practice, that part of what we want to help other people do is to invite them, and we'll talk about this invitation and response that we heard in the gospel lesson. Notice the invitation from Jesus and then the response of the disciples to follow him, and that's our, our task as a church, that we're not just supposed to gather in here on Sunday mornings and just huddle together among the people that don't know a good news story and just tell ourselves the good news, we're actually to share it and invite others into the story, just as I did around the back of the minivan, candy doesn't hurt either. But I thought about this, as we've neglected to tell the story, I think we have to be aware that we live in a culture and a society that some other assumptions and other beliefs have crept in, and I would say even into the church they have crept in. And it's natural for these things to creep in. These aren't what I'm going to share with you aren't bad things. I think they're actually good in the sense that this, it doesn't surprise me that some of these thoughts have crept into the church and into our society because if you don't have a story, right, a good news story to hold on to, if you don't have the story of the gospel and the redemption, then some other things start to leak in to our thinking and our way of assumptions and our misconceptions. And so we're actually living, as I mentioned in the story, we're living in what we are calling a post-Christian culture, post-biblical culture. So most people in our culture do not know the stories of the Bible. Most people 
in our culture and society do not understand the, what I would call the grand meta-narrative of Christianity, which is the good news of God's love and redemption for us. So I would say people are not working out of that. They're only getting snippets and little pieces of the puzzle. And so here are some beliefs that have kind of come in, and I'm not surprised by them. One is this idea of universalism. And this idea of universalism is that everyone will be saved regardless of their response, that there's no response re required to the gospel or to the story, that, that when you hear the story, if you haven't heard the story, then how can you respond to a story you can't hear, right? That's what it says in, in the New Testament. So we need people to go tell the story, to preach to them, to tell them, but also because they can't respond if they don't know the story, but also this idea is that, well, I don't have to tell the story because, why? Because... It doesn't matter anyway, right? That's universalism. It doesn't matter that there's a response. And so that's part of what's happened. Now, I actually like this sentiment, right? Because it, it doesn't hold, it, it gets us off the hook, so to speak. It, it, nobody has to be accountable to any response. Nobody has to be accountable to any invitation. And, we, and, and God becomes very uh, compassionate in this kind of idea. So I understand the idea and I understand where it's coming from, but I would say that it still falls short of an invitation to pursue a life with God. It falls short because then I never have to have a life with God. I can just keep putting it off and don't even have to worry about my relationship to God. So that's one thing. The other thing that we also have to keep in mind that as we, even as we share the story, we're, we're sharing it into a context where there's also something else called pluralism, and that is this idea that no one religion is right and all have value. That means there's no one right way or wrong way and every path has value. And so I would say, as I've done comparative religion and studied other religions, I do see value in other religions. And I see value in their practices. And there are things that attract me about other religions that I think are valuable. And I meet people from other religions that I, that I admire and hold in esteem. But at the same time, I would also say that when I compare them, again, if you don't know a lot about religions and comparative religion, there's an assumption that they're all taking you down the same road. But when you begin to really look at where different paths lead, you begin to see that they don't all take you to the same place, to the same, to the same, they actually don't all believe in God, as you and I might believe in God in the Christian faith. Not all of them are monotheistic. Not all of them believe in something or a higher power beyond ourselves. Some of them only go to another place. And so we have to understand that as good as and valuable as some of these other pathways are, they still may fall short to leading us to a God who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. So we have to keep that in mind as we talk about inviting others to follow Jesus because we're talking about maybe something and asking people to do something that they're, one, not even prepared to do because they've never heard the story, <laughs> like around the back of the minivan, or they've begun to believe other stories that it doesn't really matter, that the story doesn't matter anymore, that I don't really need to pay attention to the story because there are other ways and there are other means and there are other paths. And then we find this teaching in the letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, what I appreciate about this passage and about this teaching is that I want you to notice the word all. Did you pick up on that? That this word all is repeated here in the teaching, that all, and so in a sense, this is not universalism, but this invitation is universal to all people. That that God's not saying only this group of people gets invited (laughs) and not this group of people. What it's saying is that all are invited into relationship with God. All are accessible to God. All are invited into the kingdom of God. This is not, uh, this is salvation that is for all. The other thing I would say that is also a part of this is that it's inclusive. It's not exclusive, is it? It's an inclusive teaching that includes and invites all people to respond. Can we put the verse back up? Um, Sorry, Beth. Um, So one of the things, notice that that what it is, is that God's desire is not only to bring salvation to all, but also for all to come to a knowledge of the truth, right? So God's desire is not just that all will be saved, which is leads us a little bit to universalism, but that all would respond to the story. God's desire is that all of us would respond to this story of redemption and compassion and salvation. And so God is looking for a response from us. There's a story to be told, and there's a response from us that God is hoping for in this life, not the next. See, I think too often Christianity has been boiled down to get your ticket to heaven. You know, Pray this prayer, and then you'll get your ticket, and then you don't have to worry about anything else until you get to heaven, right? I would say that when we respond to the invitation to to follow Jesus, when we respond to the story, we're actually begins to change our life the moment we respond. Here, today, now. Did it change John's life, and James' life, and Peter's life, and Andrew's life when they responded? Absolutely. Absolutely. It changed their lives radically in that moment. See, salvation is not something just for the future, it's for today. It begins a change of life. Paul said that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? That it doesn't start when we get to heaven or when we die, it actually starts the moment we respond to the story of God. And the other thing that we see here is that last part, he said, who gave himself as a ransom, again, for how many people? For all people. There's a ransom. There's a cost. That's part of the story. A part of the story that may not make us comfortable, a part of the story that we may want to erase out, but there's actually a response and there is a cost in this story that it cost God to restore relationship to us. There was a cost to it. And I think this starts, when we respond to it, it becomes an aha moment in our lives. Have you ever had those moments in your life where you kind of go, aha, I got it, (laughs) right? We all hopefully come to that moment when we hear the story and we come to the story and we all of a sudden have this aha moment where we're humbled by the story of Christ and his salvation and him giving his life for us, that, that he came to be among us, that he came to us. See, Here's the difference, I think, the uniqueness of Christianity among the different religions. And the uniqueness of Christianity is this. When you begin to compare religions, you begin to see that of all the religions that are there, that are proposed, the different pathways we can pursue, 
that all of them require us to get to God. The pathway is something that we have to walk to get to God. Christianity's uniqueness is that God comes to us. That's what we're going to celebrate at Christmas in Advent, is that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, came to us. God took the initiative to love us. God took the initiative to come to us. God took the initiative to have compassion upon us and come into our world and restore us and redeem us and, as it says, ransom us. It cost Jesus something, not only to leave heaven and to come and walk among us, but he actually gave his life for us on the cross. He laid it down for us as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So we we see this idea that that Jesus comes to us, that God comes to us to bring salvation to us, it's already accomplished. It's done. It's completed. God's hoping that we will come to a knowledge of that truth, that we will understand it, that we will grasp it, that we will respond to it with our very lives, that we will put God back into our lives. And so you see that response and invitation and response all throughout Scripture. So I think about Jesus, uh, there's a couple biblical examples of, of what Jesus, how Jesus talks about this. In John chapter 9, he says, uh, chapter 10, he says, I am the doorway or the gate to the sheep pen. So Jesus refers, refers to himself as a door, as a way to enter into the kingdom of God, as a way to move into the kingdom of God. And what is this saying? This is, I would say to you that the door is not locked to anybody. See, if we locked it to some people and not others, that would be exclusive. But what I'm saying is, and what the Scripture teaches, is that door is open to anybody who wants to go through it. That's not exclusive. That's inclusive. And anybody who wants to go through that door can come through that door, and that is open to all. The other thing, the other image that we get around this idea of Jesus in the doorway is actually out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where and then we have the picture, you know, you have you, in the Revelation it says, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who opens the door and allows me and invites me in, responds to my invitation, responds to my knock, I will come in and have relationship with them. Do you notice anything about this picture? Some of you may know this, but do you notice anything about what, what's missing in the picture? The doorknob, right. There's no door handle. Because Jesus is just knocking He's, he's saying, I'm interested in being in relationship with you. I'm interested in being a part of your life. But you actually have to open the door. I can't open it for you. I'm not going to force my way into your life. I'm not going to force my way into this. I'm, you have to be a part of this. I invite. There's invitation. There's response. There's an invitation to follow. And there's a response to follow or not follow. And that's what we see. We see this in the life of Jesus. And as he discipled others, that the first thing Jesus did was he invited, the first thing in his ministry was he invited others to follow. The very first thing he does, one of the first things he does, not the very first, but one of the things, he goes to these uh, other people and he says, follow me. Now, what was their response? When he invited them to follow, what was their response? What's that? How, how, did they put it off? Did they, did they wait? Did they say, hey, I got to go get my house in order and let me go do some things? Or, you know, maybe next spring after we've plowed the field. Does, was that the response? It was immediate. 
Can you imagine James and John's father sitting in the boat holding the net? Can you imagine that part of the story, right? You know, they're out fishing and dad is actually relying on his two younger sons to haul in the net of fish, right? And all of a sudden they jump out of the boat and he's left holding the net of fish. He's like, well, where are you guys going? Because they immediately jump out of the boat and go follow Jesus at his invitation. There was something about Jesus that made people jump out of the boat and leave everything behind. Now, not everybody did this. We know there was a rich young ruler who had a lot of wealth, and he couldn't see himself giving up his wealth so that he could follow Jesus. He put his wealth ahead of Jesus. We saw there were other would-be disciples who made excuses, and they said, well, I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me put something, let me do something else first, and then I'll come follow you. And he says, no, no, that's not the way it works. I'm inviting you. What's your response? Is your following me a priority for your life, or are you just going to keep putting it off? Right? That's part of it. So there's this invitation, and then when they follow him, this is actually part of the model of discipleship of Jesus. You see Jesus inviting others to follow, and then they spend time with him. They grow under him. They learn from him. He becomes their mentor. He, they hear the Sermon on the Mount. They see him heal people. They see how he responds to the religious leaders and teachers. And so all the time that they're walking with Jesus, they're actually learning from Jesus, and Jesus is mentoring them. And they're learning from him because there's actually one more step that Jesus is planning to take in their lives, and that is that he's going to send them to do what he did. You see, actually in the Gospels, we see where Jesus sends out the 72, and they go share the message, they share the Gospel story, they share the good news, and they come back and they report what God is doing through their ministry. And even when Jesus dies on the cross, is resurrected, in the book, we have a whole book of the Bible called the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles. Do you know what apostle is? We've had a few movies named the apostle created, but do you know what an apostle is? One that is sent. That's what it means to be an apostle, to be sent. And so the whole book of Acts is about the sending of the apostles, about them going out and being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the world, them going out and telling the story, them inviting others to follow so that they can grow them and then send out another generation of followers of Jesus. And this has been going on for over 2,000 years. Invite, grow, send. Invite, grow, send. Invite, grow, send. That's the pattern. This pattern of invitation, but it requires our response. And so this is the next ripple effect. I, I want you to notice something, though. Those of you who, who know the story and have read the Gospels, how long did Jesus spend in ministry here on earth? How long? Three years. Notice he didn't stay around. Why? If Jesus had stayed around, what would the apostles have done then? They would have continued to depend upon Jesus' leadership when Jesus actually wanted to multiply leadership and send them into the world. He said, if I stay here, you guys will become dependent upon me, so I need to send you, and you have to depend upon the Holy Spirit and sends the Holy Spirit upon their lives to do that. So this is part of the ripple effect we've been talking about, and this is the next ripple where we're moving out into the community and moving out into our world and becoming the hands and feet of Jesus, inviting others to follow Jesus. And next week we'll talk about our last one, which is do justice. And actually these two go together. That there's a story to be told, but there's still redemption that needs to happen in the world. And so we're, we're a people of both personal 
call and social call, of personal holiness and social holiness, of personal redemption and social redemption. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But I also want you to know something else about this passage in Peter, in Timothy, sorry, Timothy, I get my, my biblical authors mixed up. What is Paul doing as he's writing this letter to Timothy? What, what is he talking about? He's talking about prayer. Did you notice that? He's talking about petitioning and making requests. The context of these verses is in Paul's prayer for the people. So Paul is praying, and I, and I love, I don't know how different ways we could translate it, but I, I almost feel like Paul's saying, uh, you need to pray for all. Isn't that what he says? Pray for all to come to know Jesus, to follow Jesus. And then I, I kind of want to insert in the, in the translation, even leaders, even those in authority, even those. Why? So he's saying, pray for all to come to faith, but pray for your leaders. Pray for those in authority. Pray for your kings and, and those around you that are in leadership so that we can lead peaceful and godly lives, so that we can have a, whole, a wholeness in our community. Now, some people, because the church has often been called to pray for our leaders, and some people have misconceived this call to prayer for our leadership as a political strategy. Like, well, that's just a way to keep the, the status quo, right? That's just a way to keep things, uh, people from getting, you know, unruly or whatever. So there, people see it as a political strategy, but actually that's not what Paul's saying here at all. Paul's saying it's a missional strategy. Did you hear that? He said this is part of the mission. He puts it in the context of wanting the whole world to know Christ and to know God, right? It's within the context of the mission of the church that Paul prays for everyone, including leaders. Maybe even leaders we don't like. We're still to pray for them that they would come to know Christ as well and that they would follow him because we believe this, that a life with Jesus is better than a life without Jesus. And why wouldn't we hope that and pray that for anyone? If we believe that, if we've experienced it ourselves, if we know that to be true for ourselves, our job is to invite others and to relay that to others and pray for others. So I, here's my, my, my application for you today. Who's on your prayer list? Who are you praying for? Who, who, who's on that list? And are you praying for people on that list for the invitation and the response? Are you praying for them? Are you praying that they would all come to the full knowledge of Jesus Christ and his salvation? Are you praying for people that way? Because I believe that our invitation and our sharing of the good news and the story actually starts with our prayer life. You see, we, talk, we often think that it starts out there in the streets, you know, going just blindly walking. And you, we get this kind of mental image of I've got to go walk up to people that I don't know total strangers and share this story with them. That's not, I don't think, what we're talking about. I think there are people in our lives that God wants us to start praying for first. And then as we pray for them, we know that the Holy Spirit works in their lives to respond. So who are you praying for? Who's on your list? Is there someone there that you're praying for? I hope so. Because it begins with prayer. You know, I've preached in a few churches besides this one. And I was preaching in a church that was geared to reach the unchurched people, people outside the church. So we 
particularly were missionally focused on helping people who did not know the ch- Christ or did not grow up in the church to, to come to, to invite them to follow Jesus. And one day I was preaching and there was a young man, his name was, I later found out was Daniel, and he was sitting over here to my left, your right, and he was a big burly guy. I mean, he was a big burly guy, lived on the streets half the time, slept in his car half the time, couch surfed half the time. And uh, he had a big old knife that he kept in his pocket because he had to, when you live in the streets, you've got to have some kind of defense. So his defenses are always up, is what I'm telling you. So Daniel came in to our church one Sunday. He sat over here, and, and he sat there, and he, with his arm folded like this, he just sat in the chair, you know, everybody's singing, he's just sitting there like this, staring straight ahead, arms folded. This whole sermon, he's sitting there just like this. And I'm like, his body language is saying to me, I don't want to be here. I don't like what you're saying. I don't like what you're singing about. So I thought, well, that's probably the last Sunday I'm going to see Daniel. Next, very next Sunday, I get up to preach, and there's Daniel over there, arms folded, sitting there, no response, no nothing, just staring off into oblivion. I'm thinking, he's mad. He doesn't like anything here. This went on another Sunday or two. He would just come in, sit there, look angry. I, talked to, I started to ask around about Daniel. And one of the other young people in our church said, fessed up and said, yeah, I invited Daniel to come to our church. I, I, I saw him, and he was a friend of a friend, and we were somewhere, and I said, why don't you just come to our church? You, you'd be welcome at our church. It'd be safe for you to come to our church. So I invited him. I'm like, okay. Well, that's what I, we've been talking about. That's good. And so then one night I show up at a Bible study. It's a Tuesday night Bible study, and I'm there. And in, walk, in the door walks Daniel and sits down at the Bible study. Now, he's not there the whole time because he's a chain smoker, and so he's going out having a cigarette, coming back in for Bible study, going out and having a cigarette, coming back in for Bible study. Hit, miss, hit or miss, hit or miss. And at the end of the Bible study, now I don't know Daniel, very well. I just know he's a tough guy. At the end of the Bible study, he says, Pastor, can I talk to you? I said, sure. So he said, well, I need to talk to you alone. I was like, okay. So I walk into another room in the house, and we go into the room, and there are two doors in the room, and he goes over to the far door, and he locks the door. He goes over to the near door, and he locks the door. And I can see the knife bulging in his pocket. (laughs) And I'm thinking, this is it. You're done, Matt. Your life is over as we know it. He's bigger than me. He's stronger than me. He's got a knife. He wants me alone in a locked room. All I've seen is bad body language. I'm like, this is it. I'm on my knee. No, I'm just kidding. He said, Pastor, I need to ask you a question. I need you to tell me what to do. I was like, all right. He said, every time I come to to church, I sit there and I feel like crying. And I said, well, what do you you mean? He's like, well, what I do every time I come to your church is I fold my arms and I stare off into space because I'm fighting back the tears. I'm fighting back because I was taught I'm not supposed to cry. I was taught that you don't show your emotions. I was taught that this is not what I'm supposed to do. 
but every time I come in there, there's something going on there, Pastor. There's something going on in that church, and I don't know what it is or what's going on, but I come in there, and I just fight back the tears. He says, tell me what to do. And I looked at him, and I said, Daniel, just cry. It's safe. It's okay. Nobody's going to look at you differently if you cry. It's okay to cry in church as you've witnessed this morning, hopefully. But I said to him, because I believe that God's beginning to work in your life. You're here because God is beginning to speak into your life. Allow it. Allow the tears. Allow whatever God wants to do in your life to be to do. And just trust me and trust God. He said, all right, pastor. Unlock the door. We go back to life as normal. Next Sunday, Daniel's there arms folded, right? Staring off in space, but I can see the tears coming down his cheek this week. A couple weeks later, he brought his girlfriend to church. A few weeks after that, he brought family members and friends from the streets to church. And he just kept inviting people. Why did he do that? Why did he want to go invite his friends and his girlfriend and his family? Because he found something. He found something that was good for him. He found something that was good in his life, and he wanted to invite others to share it with him. If God has been good to us, if it truly is good news for us and for others, then why not invite? Why not invite others into that good news story? Why not invite others into the love and grace of Jesus Christ in our lives? Why not pray for them that they would be like Daniel? that they would experience God and the healing and the wholeness that God and a life with God brings. Why not? What's it going to hurt? It didn't hurt Daniel. It didn't hurt the family around the back of my minivan. It didn't hurt you to come here this morning, I hope. We're here because God is here, and God is present, and God is working in our lives. Let's pray together.